You are listening to a production of WRCT Pittsburgh. Any opinions expressed within are solely those of the participants and do not reflect the views of WRCT Radio Incorporated. Questions and comments can be addressed to the Public Affairs Director at PA at WRCT.org or by calling 412-621-0728. Yeah, I I don't really know. Like, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure what we're looking to do for this episode. What about... I mean, everyone, like, ties their shoes the same way, right? Yeah. But why? Why is there, like, that way of tying their shoes? <laughs> I don't know. I like I like the thing about sports in the brain better than, than like, a, a real something like that, I guess. I don't know. Mm, I wonder when the double knot came around. <laughs> sure. Uh... Actually, okay, what about... What if we made a show about reading? What do you mean? Like, we look at words on a page like little scribbles, and somehow our brain just, like, knows what we're reading. You're saying doing the topic on reading? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I mean, we, like, read all the time, right? Yeah. We were reading before we were doing this today. Yeah, we, we were tying our shoes this morning. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, you read all the time. You read when you're ordering off a menu. You read when you're reading a book. Like, reading is, I don't know, I feel like we do it all the time, right? Like, sure, sure. Yeah. It's, you, com- it's commonplace. That's, I guess that's a good, that would hook people. Like, if we, if we, yeah, I mean, we want something that's universal, which is kind of the shoes idea. Yeah. Are you are you a fan? Uh, I mean, I'm not not a fan. I guess I don't I don't know how to bring reading to life. Like I don't know what. I, when I hear <laughs> reading, I'm not like, oh, sick radio show. <laughs> gotta gotta go listen to that. You know, I gotta know what a good hook would be. Right. Okay. So this was yeah. sort of my hook. I was reading something this morning. Okay. And I was reading about this writer who apparently like lost the ability to read. Okay. Why? Or so okay. The story goes like this. He apparently just woke up one morning, walked out of his bedroom like every other morning, walked <clears throat> down the stairs and you know, popped in his bread for his toast, made some eggs, and he walks out his front door and, you know, leans over, picks up his newspaper, unfolds it and notices that everything is sort of written in this gibberish language, like it nothing on the page seems to make sense. It, he thought it was like written in Korean, actually. Uh, okay, sounds. Do you have like a stroke? Yeah, or, exactly. Okay. That's exactly what happened. So he ended up having this stroke. He found out later, and and actually, you know, severely cut off blood flow to the part of his brain that actually does that transcribing of all those scribbles and such into words and into meanings and to paragraphs and such. Okay. Okay. I mean that. <clears throat> that's kind of cool, I guess. Or, I mean, I, yeah, that, that like is interesting because it ties in like stuff about the brain. I mean, I think that's always a winner. Yeah. The crazy part, though, is that even though he couldn't read, he found out that he could still write. So when he was like writing hmm. stuff down on a page, 
right after he finished writing it down, it just like looked like complete garbage again. Hmm. That's really weird. So like he couldn't even understand anything that he wrote himself. But he actually could still write? Yeah. Like his friends would come up and be like, yeah, I, I, you wrote perfect English. You just made a... like doesn't even make sense though. I know. But like those two things, reading and writing, are independent of each other. Or at least that's what he found out because he was able to do one thing but not the other. Hmm. I, that's a pretty... In, I mean, that like brings to life the like the brain part of this, you know? Yeah. It's just insane. Like how does that even work? Hmm. That that could be cool. That could be cool to do. And then talk about reading. Yeah, talk about reading. I mean, once again, like we read all the time, and this dude like shows that there's so much complexity in like the way our brains are actually doing the reading itself. And like before, I heard that story. You know, I just read stuff that's written on a page, and I don't even think about it. I didn't even think about that. My brain is actually taking scribbles and performing all these like thought processes on it to turn it into a word, into a sentence and such. Kind of insane. For this episode of I Wonder, we decided to take a question from Daniel. He's my co-host here. You're listening to I Wonder, and I'm Ellis Robinson. We were brainstorming, trying to figure out what to bring for you this episode, and no one called us with a question. Usually we take a question from a listener and then we try to answer that and that makes the basis of our show. But try to give us a call this next week. Anyway, that story, the guy who had the stroke and couldn't read but could write, Daniel found that on the blog Crowlich Wonders on NPR.org. It's also going to be in a new book that Oliver Sacks is writing called The Mind's Eye. You're listening to I Wonder here on 88.3 FM WRCT Pittsburgh. And this week we're going to be trying to figure out How the heck are we able to read? And actually, it's pretty cool when you start looking into it. So, stay tuned. And so to completely analyze what we do when we read would almost be the acme of a psychologist's achievements. For it would be to describe very many of the most intricate workings of the human mind, as well as to unravel the tangled story of the most remarkable specific performance that civilization has learned in all its history. Sir Edmund Huey. Hi, uh, Marianne. Yes, good! I was so afraid it wouldn't work and I have to... That's Marianne Wolf, professor of child development at Tufts University. So, let's let's start and just fire away. Sure. So we have this quote that, if I understand it correctly, it says that understanding reading would be close to finding some, like, holy grail of the mind. Like, is do I have that kind of right? What Huey was trying to do and did so beautifully in that quote, and what we in cognitive science are doing, you know, a, a century later, is trying to make everyone understand that cultural inventions like reading and like math are not wired into our brain. They are, in fact, new circuits. And by studying them, it's not necessarily the holy grail as such, but it certainly is a monumental epiphany to realize that the brain has the capacity to use its previously genetically programmed circuit 
to build a totally new circuit out of these older parts. Dude, have you ever thought about how insane the invention of reading is? <laughs> the invention of reading? Yeah. No. <laughs> like, I haven't actually thought about it for a second of my life. Like, it seems like kind of a big deal. Like, think about it. At one point in time, people couldn't read. They couldn't write. They had no way of, like, transporting ideas across distances or time. And then after the invention of written language, they could. Like, bananas. Yeah. No, I mean, I just, I never thought of it. Like, I didn't think of it that way. It's just something so automatic to me. Like, I've been doing it my whole life. I don't remember learning how to do it. It's just, it's like walking or, like, chewing. And you're probably not alone, so don't feel bad, Ellis. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, dude. <laughs> I mean, I didn't really ponder it much until I read Proust and the Squid, that book that Marianne Wolf wrote about the history and science of reading. Think about it, though. The people, the first people who used written language and what it allowed them to do. Hmm. Give me an example of that. All right. So let's say that you, Ellis, you have a, a watermelon juice stand. <laughs> Tight. Okay. <laughs> a, a Mesopotamian. I can get behind that. Yeah. A, a Mesopotamian watermelon juice stand. Okay. I mean, that's a profession I can definitely see myself having done, what, 6,000, 7,000 years ago? Yeah. It, me too. I could totally see it. So, okay. You're sitting in your Mesopotamian basement. Sure. Uh, trying to figure out how much product you're, you've been going through or something. Of the watermelons. Right. And so... Thinking about whether or not you're going to meet the demand for the watermelon juice and people who want to buy it and stuff, right? For sure, for sure. I mean, it's, it's July, it's hot, people want their juice. Of course they do. <laughs> but how, I mean, how would you keep track of how much stuff you'd sold? How many melons I had sold to make juice? Right, exactly. I mean, you want to make a profit, you want to make sure that you're meeting the demand of the needs of the people. I would look at how much I sold in the past. Yeah, right, but how? Writing doesn't exist, dude. I, I would have said I would have looked at how much I wrote down from the day before. but Yeah, exactly. So aside from knowing whether or not you and your family are starving or not, uh, <laughs> which is probably not the most streamlined way of judging your business performance, how would you know? People used to actually have to see visuals of things before any sort of written tallying existed, which is actually what is believed to be the first writing of any kind. I'm guessing you would probably take a bunch of watermelons, make the juice that you're going to sell that day, and then probably keep the rind sitting around so later that day you could say, oh, I sold this many melons worth of juice. Bam. So all those rinds that were sitting in my basement rotting away that helped me do my uh, accounting later, I would, <laughs> I would just be able to put those on a little stone tablet now? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Writing, reading seems kind of like a big deal. Let's go back to Marianne Wolf. So I, re I read your book, and this, this thing, reading, which I've done for most Take of my life. Take it for granted, and, totally. Okay, you're reading off my script now. <laughs> oh, yeah, we just completely take it for granted. Yeah, it just it's so embedded into the day-to-day. The -day. Don't even yeah. think of the mechanisms that are actually right. going you, on. You, it's even worse than that. Um, people assume it's a natural part of who we are. Huh. Well, there's nothing natural about reading. Describe what is so unnatural then about this. What's so, um, what I would, would say, what is so beautiful is that we have examples through reading and through numeracy, literacy and numeracy both give us this, of how we can learn something new based on the capacity to 
take older networks and build an entire new circuit from them. Hmm. Now, that's a capacity to make new connections. And it, of course, is part of our plasticity in the brain. But here we have just a beautiful example of how all of us take this for granted and there's not a single gene in your body for it alone. Now, obviously reading was a huge benefit for the watermelon juice vendor, and the birth of the alphabet in the written language, when you sit down to actually think about it, it's altered humankind drastically. But, okay, let's take a step back for a second. What about the brain? What is the brain actually doing when it reads? Well, what happens is that it employs, if you will, four very major um, areas of the brain that were genetically programmed. And let's take us through it. The first thing you do when you look at a sentence is all your attentional mechanisms. And you have three different attentional systems, but they're all firing away so that you lead attention and then the visual system to the print itself. So let's give a sentence. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, <laughs> Olivia uh, wore a red dress. Let's just, the simplest of all possible sentences. Okay, Olivia wore a red dress. Big deal. Okay, the big deal is that all of those letters form particular patterns in the English language. You begin with attention. You go to vision. You go to the representation of these these letters, letter patterns in your language. You are also orthogra orthographically is a big word. Don't need it. You're you're <laughs> looking at the patterns that form meaning morphemes here. And you're then getting all the semantic information, and you're getting syntactic information, and together you get Olivia wore a red dress. All right, so this seems logical. First, our attention goes to the circle or the line that we see on the page, and then our brains have to make the leap from, okay, this is a circle, to this is the letter O. And then that letter O has a sound associated with it, and that sound, next to other sounds, makes a word. Yeah, kind of abstract, though. Uh, I mean, I guess. What do you mean? Like, visual system attentional mechanism. Th those are the words that Marianne was using. To me, that kind of sounds abstract. You know what I mean? Mm, go on. Like, okay, I get that. And I get that this is a complicated thing now that we're looking into it. Right. But what's the physical basis here? Like what's happening in what part of the brain when a word goes into it? Ha. Huh. Okay. So I found a guy who did a study that looked at just that. He and his team of researchers figured out what the brain actually looks like when it's reading. My name is Marcel Justin. I'm the uh, director of the Center for Cognitive Brain Imaging here at Carnegie Mellon. You can see the parts of the brain that are working when they're thinking. Uh, all kinds of thought involves multiple areas of activation. You don't do any kind of thinking with one part of your brain. So it's always a network of areas. Even though the brain's a network, there are some areas that are used more than others. And reading involves angular gyrus. And if I recall correctly, there's a lower amount of angular gyrus activation in, uh, in uh, dyslexia. The angular gyrus is a region of the brain located right above your left ear. And what Marcel's research group did was they used brain scanners to look at how much the angular gyrus was working while kids were reading. Yeah, they basically shove kids in this big machine that takes pictures of the brain and they make them read. Yeah, and they actually compared that angular gyrus activity before and after intensive reading instruction. Prior to instruction, less activation in angular gyrus mm -hmm. for kids with reading problems than before. And after the scan, near normal levels of angular gyrus activation. 
and near normal levels of, or it certainly improved levels of reading. This is super cool on many, many levels. Yeah, first off, brain scanners. Like, these allow you to look at parts of the brain that are working when you do something. Like reading. Yeah, using these machines, scientists like Marcel Just, they're able to link a physical property, which is basically how much and how fast your brain cells are firing, to something more abstract. Like thinking, or talking, or reading. Exactly. We should say how brain scanners actually work real quickly, though. So brain scanners, or fMRI machines, they can measure how much iron is in a given place in your brain. Yeah, and we care about iron because iron is in blood. When you perform some brain activity, like when your angular gyrus is doing its part in reading, a lot of blood is flowing, and that's what they're measuring. So, I don't know, was this surprising? Was it surprising that you could, that you get a brain change with this training? Yeah. Um, Maybe not so surprising, but you haven't asked me about our other analysis here where we, where we measured the white matter. Okay, and what is that? White matter is the brain's cabling among the various areas. All, all thinking involves sort of a network activity among a set of areas, and right. they have to communicate with each other. And the way they communicate is through these cables in the brain. These cables in the brain, the white matter, constitute 40, 45% of the brain. So it's obviously an extremely important part right. of the brain. Right. We found that in these kids who had um, uh, reading problems, there was an area of the brain where the white matter had lower structural integrity. Also done with an MRI scanner, but in a different way. And the, I think the most dramatic thing that came from this study that nobody expected was that the white matter changed in the course of this the, of these few months of instruction. We changed the kids' brains. Wow. Furthermore, the amount of change in a given child in their white matter was correlated with their reading improvement. So it's not just some generalized sort of good thing to have happened in the brain. It was very specific to their reading improvement. This, I think, was, is one of the first studies ever of changing people's brains, certainly changing their white matter with some instructional, educational manipulation. So the actual structure of the, I mean, the brain matter is changed exactly. due to this learning? Exactly. For the first time, we changed people's white matter. Huh. And, and the more we change it, the, be the more their reading improved. Wow. You're listening to I Wonder. Thanks for tuning in. You can hear us on 88.3 FM WRCT Pittsburgh, 5 p.m. Wednesday afternoons. Also, in other exciting news, we're a new member of American Student Radio. It's a network of student podcasts based in Bloomington, Indiana. Check out AmericanStudentRadio.org to find out more. Stay tuned for more about the hidden awesomeness of reading coming up. So I started looking at Chinese because it's a very different writing system and the characters don't correspond to um, sound units as alphabetic writing does. So there's nothing in Chinese writing that corresponds to say a letter T 
and the sound t. That's Charles Perfetti that you're listening to. He's a cognitive psychologist at the University of Pittsburgh and does research on reading and language. It looked like in principle you could read Chinese without going through the sound system. The logic was that nothing in the character that corresponds to a basic speech sound. You would just go directly from the character to the meaning. So on the face of it, there are these differences. The basic unit of Chinese written language are characters. These are almost like words themselves. They have meanings associated with them alone. In English, however, our characters are letters, and we associate those with different sounds. Yeah, and psychologists can actually see those differences in the reader's brains. Right, using brain scanning. Yeah, for example, Chinese readers use the back right portion of their brain a little bit more than English readers. And that's important because that's where a lot of visual processing goes on. Their language requires a lot more visual acuity than ours does. However... That character that corresponds to a meaning also corresponds to a spoken syllable in Chinese. So what happens in Chinese is that the sound of the syllable is activated in the mind of the reader at the same time the meaning is. And, and when you think about it, it makes sense. It led to, that led to what we call the universal phonological principle, which is that all writing systems, no matter what they look like on the surface, work by going through the language. They're not like visual signs that go directly to meaning. They all work because they're attached to a spoken language. It just happens in the Chinese case that the unit is a syllable. So despite some differences in brain activity... And obviously the differences in the written language... Right. I mean, we have a 26-letter alphabet compared to thousands of Chinese characters. Despite all of that, the languages are way more alike than they are different, at least as far as the reading brain is concerned. Yeah, and way more in common than scientists had thought before Charles Perfetti's work. So imagine a writing on cave walls so where you see pictures of objects. So that's something that doesn't go through the language. It's, uh, it's, it's meant to communicate uh, stories or events, uh, and it turns out that those don't ever evolve into writing systems because they don't have productivity. That is, you can't, you can't uh, generate the language from them. They're just, they, don't have, they don't have syntax, to put, gotcha. to put it roughly. Uh, but all real writing systems are able to represent the full power of the language, not just words and what they refer to, but how you put words together to make sentences and so on and to generate uh, a, an infinite infinity of messages. Well, that is pretty much it for this episode of I Wonder. Ellis, I think I convinced you, and I hope we convinced our listeners, that reading is incredible. It's such a complex process, but since we do it so quickly, we're able to take it for granted. Yeah, I mean, I did. But when you think about it, written language is one of the most important things humans have ever invented the side of the wheel. I just never thought about it that way before, but I think I will from now on. Right. I mean... It's something we can look at inside the brain with fMRI. Yeah, that's true. And not to mention that the act of reading alone, both in a physical and cognitive sense, changes your brain. So next time you pick up a book, you are literally changing the architecture of cells in your brain. Pretty cool. Thank you to our guests, Marianne Wolf from Tufts, Marcel Just from Carnegie Mellon, and Charles Perfetti from the University of Pittsburgh. You can find out more about I Wonder at iwonderpgh.org. You can stream and download past episodes. Also, let us know what questions you're wondering about and what you'd like to hear on the program. Thanks, everyone, for listening this week. I want to close out the show with just one last thing. Lay it on me. Daniel. 
Did you know that Socrates hated reading? For Socrates, he believed we should not read. So why was he so worried about the, yeah. the gathering steam that reading was... Right. Yes, he did not want us to read. But what he wanted to point out, as I want to point out now, is not that really we shouldn't read, but we should make sure that if we read, or in this case, if we read digitally and Internet-type reading, that we are aware that we must go below the surface and are not content, as Socrates worried, that we would stop with the superficial understanding. Uh, Socrates basically feared that our youth would have the illusion of truth when they had only barely begun. What exactly is the parallel here in the digital age? The parallel age? is that children um, oftentimes, if, and we, you know, we observe this a lot, um, their attention is becoming so continuously moving from stimulus to stimulus that the great worry is that they literally don't have time or motivation because they're attracted to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. They don't have the motivation to go below the surface and do what I told you that the reading circuit does after it activates all the, you know, the, the lower level stuff, you bring to bear all your knowledge, your insights, your associations. Well, the worry is that children who don't have an expert reading brain yet will potentially not develop the set towards going deeper, that they don't have the motivation and they don't invest the time because they haven't learned to do that.